Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Sebastian Galley, Senior Currency Strategist at Deutsche Bank, who joins us now here at the Pier Hotel. Thank you very much for being here. And let's start with what we're seeing in the currency market in light of that attack uh, yesterday. Not a whole lot of movement uh, in the pound. Let me just expand from that to say uh, we're dealing with a lot of political risk. And when you look at the Forex space, it seems like politics has been and continues to be a huge driver here. Indeed, it's a big driver. I think the market got used to terror attacks, and I'd like to express my condolences mm. to the people of England Absolutely. and the United Kingdom. But uh, they have basically learned to, to deal with terrorism in, in, uh, in Europe, and basically it means that it has very little impact. For example, what you could see is you could see a terror attack ahead of the French election, whether it be the first round, more probably the second round. And what we know from experience is it will have very little impact on the actual outcome because fears does not actually lead to changes in, in voting patterns, which is somewhat reassuring. It is more anger that drives uh, a change in voting patterns, and that may be triggered by a different events. For example, in the case of the Netherlands, we saw an incident with Turkey, which had changed uh, the tone for a few days, and then uh, the vote for the populist group, VPP, uh, essentially disappeared very quickly. So that kind of incident could be repeated, uh, driven by an external factor in the French election, and it's a risk which is very hard to measure. But uh, as we've seen in the past few elections in the West, they seem to be uh, coming in and coming in uh, repeatedly. The highest impact would be one to three days before the French election. Uh, that is basically anger would not have enough time to recede. And so the vote, which in this case, if it is uh, one which is driven by anger, would then help the uh, populist vote. Now, after the Brexit referendum, after the U.S. election, there was a lot of concern about polling. Let's look at the Dutch election in particular. didn't turn out the way uh, uh, many people thought it would. Perhaps polling wasn't uh, as disadvantaged as with those other cases. But uh, how do you rely on polling now, looking ahead to the French election? Well, in the case of polling, uh, it depends on the countries. They don't all have the same methodologies, but the French were absolutely scared by what happened both in the U.K. and the U.S. The difference in, the, uh, in France is the... Uh, Populist Party, or what you could consider to be a populist party, because it is a definition of the Front National from uh, Madame Marine Le Pen, mm. uh, it has not historically uh, been different in terms of outcomes in the votes versus the polls. So there is not this biased vote that people would uh, would actually expect. What they've done is they try to improve the polling methodology as much as they could to reduce this, and they use what they call rolling polls. So every day you have at least two polls coming out of France, and they're very very stable. They have also what they call stratified pollings, which means it goes into the different groups, such as uh, workers, um, you know, employees, staff, CEOs, and to try to see the evolution of each single group, whether it's older or younger voters, uh, to see if the cha- there is a change in the patterns. Yet journalists in France do not trust this system, and so what they've decided is, in many cases, to send out reporters all across France to check directly with the population, to ask them questions, to see if there was uh, a change in the evolution, a pattern that would maybe be missed, and that would have an important impact in uh, on the uh, on the 
actual vote at the end of the day. So there's a lot of work to, made to try to make sure that it isn't uh, a risk. For now, the market has decided for many reasons, including the stratified polling, that the uh, odds of Marine Le Pen winning are extremely small. Then Macron has a very high probability of winning. And at this point, that seems to be a, a reasonable bet. Yeah, we talk about risk events, and I was listening to the hearing on Capitol Hill earlier this week with the FBI director and the NSA director, and um, both basically said Russia had some involvement here, or eagerness to be involved in the U.S. election, and uh, other countries having elections should stand on guard. When you think of risk events, uh, how, how, how big a risk event is the potential for intervention by another country like Russia? Well... I should take a, a neutral sense. I, yeah. should, I should point out that uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, was uh, actually coached by uh, Mayor, uh, ex-Mayor Bloomberg, so he, he received uh, his, his own training. Mr. Amon received uh, training from the ex-Treasury uh, 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 Secretary. And so these are already uh, existing uh, interventions. From my personal point of view, I find them very positive. Uh, there have been uh, interventions which uh, some may have considered to be less positive, and they were the case in the, in the Netherlands coming from Turkey at a critical time, but uh, too early to make a difference. Anger in the polls decreased at a very fast rate, um, so they didn't have the, uh, the outcome that one would have expected, and therefore there would be a change if, uh, if uh, a non-desirable intervention should happen. What are the odds of interventions in France? If you look at uh, the different uh, articles or ways that information is transmitted by uh, foreign agents into the French press, there are several of them. They have been very critical of, uh, of Monsieur Emmanuel Macron. They have been generally very supportive of Marine Le Pen, as well as a gentleman called Mélenchon. The reason why they would support Mélenchon, who's a far-right supporter, who's doing quite well, is because a percentage of the vote of Mr. Mélenchon would have a certain probability of actually voting for Marine Le Pen in the second round. These are uh, worker type. Um, the odds and the uh, the polls suggest this is far less than uh, than uh, these people seem to think, but they are basically uh, been pushing for uh, for these uh, two candidates at this point in time. It looks like they've abandoned Fillon, who's uh, too low in the polling. So, and Fillon also has changed his stance relative to Russia and has become uh, much less pro-Russian than he once was. He was accused once by uh, Monsieur Juppé of uh, drinking excessive amounts of vodka, which was a, a reference to his very close ties uh, to Russia at the time. And since then, he has uh, distanced himself considerably, a process which uh, may continue for other candidates. Let me pivot a little bit here to talk about the, the Chinese currency. You mentioned before we got started here, uh, a pivotal moment coming up here for the IMF, which has placed the renminbi in the uh, special drawing basket that the IMF has. What are we going to learn over these next coming days? Indeed, uh, the CNY or Remimbi has been uh, added to the SCR, which is the official currency used by the IMF, by the BIS, by uh, the World Bank, and uh, also Jordan, and to some extent uh, Libya. So it is actually a relevant uh, currency. It's uh, a non-negligible one. But what we will learn at the end of the month is not about the SDR, but about the amount of uh, reserves in Remimbi, CNY, or CNH that is being held by foreign reserves. Uh, as part of what we call the IMF coffer. And this is a great mystery because nobody knows how much money has been invested by foreign reserves into the Remimbi. It might be in the order of 2%. We will know exactly how much it is. But I think it's people. It's something that a lot of people are starting to pay a strong amount of attention to. It tells you how much of a competitor to the dollar it is. And the answer is it's very much not one. But the, uh, the Chinese have been preparing the, the way for the, in the next decades to be a serious competitor, both to the euro and the dollar. Uh, that process will take many years. For now, the renminbi is uh, overvalued and should actually devalue, uh, but they can't afford this uh, process right now. 
But in a, a horizon of 10, 15 to 20 years, you'll see that the RMB becomes uh, much more used as a currency. There are FX swaps aligned uh, between the PBOC and many different central banks. And as they go through that process, uh, the Chinese RMB should be a much more ordinary currency used uh, internationally, including as part of foreign reserves. So they do not really fit the criteria, whatever the IMF said, uh, to be a foreign reserves at this point in time. They will eventually, and they will do very well. We saw this infusion of capital uh, by the PBOC. So yesterday and indeed in the two days before that as well. Uh, and there wasn't a whole lot of transparency from the PBOC about what it was doing. When it comes to currency generally, is the Chinese government talking more about it? We just had the National People's Congress in Beijing. Uh, is currency something they're keener to talk about now than they used to be? Uh, from all the information that we have is uh, they are very keen not to talk uh -huh. about the currency. <laughs> Uh, the, the key problem that they have is, uh, one, is a link to financial stability. If they let the currency go, it might be uh, unhelpful for financial stability on one side. Number two, there is a big negotiation process happening right now between uh, many countries in the world and the United States. The United States is complaining, in part quite correctly, so that its currency is overvalued. And it's overvalued because on the cyclical side, the U.S. is doing well but also for, because many central banks around the world have taken excessive measures to weaken their currencies. That includes the PBOC, but it also includes the ECB and the BOJ. And as these negotiations happen in the background, and you should forget a lot of the noise, which sometimes uh, can be quite disturbing, but there are professionals in the background doing their work, it seems that there is a, uh, a play at work in which the uh, central banks are going to tighten at the measure which fits basically their mandates, uh, which will help their currencies to appreciate. That may be that there may be devalues uh, to some extent, but it also means uh, that the euro would uh, go higher. The coffee is hot, the weather uh, is cold, Tom Keane. It, it, it's, it, it's like Rochester, New York. You know, there's winter, more winter in the 4th of July. I know. More and more winter pushing right ahead, now. Pushing ahead to the weekend. Saturday is supposed to be a little nicer here uh, it in was New York. remarkable, folks. I was just over at our world headquarters, of course, doing our television show, and David, for our radio audience, just remarkable uh, this morning to uh, see Prime Minister May speak, and then a very somber Mr. Corbyn in black, black tie and a white shirt, and... Of course, a packed House of Commons in the moment where the speaker turned to the French foreign minister in the upper gal gallery uh, at the House of Commons it was really quite, really quite something to observe. Truly a terrible event yesterday. And as you pointed out on the, the TV program, the, 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 the nationalities of those who were killed yesterday yeah. varied, incredibly varied, including three French students. I believe. And one American, we yeah. should point out. There's a lot we don't know right now. We're learning a little more. But, of course, we'll have coverage on that through the day. Uh, we're here with Sebastian Galley. He's a senior currency strategist at Deutsche Bank, kind enough to, to be with us here at the Pier Hotel. We were talking about Europe, talking about the French elections. Let's talk about uh, North America for a little while here. I'm sure that you're watching what's playing out in Washington, and I wonder the degree to which you think that's going to portend something for tax reform uh, as you're looking at the, 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 the dollar loonies. Say, how do you factor all of that in? First, I'm French, so uh, the families in Concarneau must, must be uh, hurting at this yes. point in time. But uh, looking forward at, uh, at the taxes, uh, there have been some difficulties, basically, in the administration to, to pass the law. So we expect that uh, this night there actually will be a vote. So it will continue Senate. So it continues its normal process. I think the market was very frightened that this administration was relatively weak and that it could really not, uh, when it really mattered, put some uh, political weight and actually achieve a breakthrough. And it seems that it is achieving it. That means the second stage, which is uh, the taxes, which is a much harder fight in some ways, uh, is going to go through. That includes potentially the border tax adjustment, which has huge implications for the dollar, for taxation in general, and for the size of the tax cuts that will affect us all. 
on on our salaries. If it isn't there, then it'll be much more difficult. Um, but it, that is a um, more positive if really that would uh, go through. The uh, U.S. administration has shown flexibility. It has basically uh, flummoxed and uh, and threatened, but ultimately it actually has proved a. a well-oiled uh, political operator able to actually pass through some uh, some difficult measures. We'll see that confirmation probably uh, tonight. So taxes will then be the next step. They are very difficult, particularly at the Senate stage, particularly in the case of the BAT. The infrastructure project is mostly dead on arrival, but there probably will be a fig leaf. That's probably something for uh, next year. The economy is running well at, uh, at a high pace with uh, probably Q1, which is relatively low. Uh, but it is running in the, in the right direction, so it doesn't need that much of an impulse. Nonetheless, uh, the market is betting on that impulse, as betting through equities on that impulse. Uh, and if we fail to get a, uh, a move in that direction, then, of course, uh, we could see a significant correction. When you talk about the border adjustment tax, it's, some, it's something that the president didn't bring up in his speech before a joint session of, of Congress. We don't have a clear sense of whether or not the, the White House is backing it. Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, was in Berlin before heading on to Baden-Baden and was asked about it. And he said that they're weighing a lot of things they haven't yet committed to to backing it. How integral is it to tax reform, do you think? Uh, if, if there isn't that component uh, to a tax reform package, do you think it stands a chance of getting through? It's huge. Uh, it's huge in the sense that the, the amount, one is there's a tremendous amount of resistance coming from the retail, from uh, refiners, uh, from other industries that are heavily opposed to it. But if you can imagine, this is a carrot and a stick and uh, there's a big stick, and the stick is the BAT. And what they're using the BAT is to achieve political gains abroad, and these uh, means uh, changes in monetary policy mostly. For example, the ECB turning less dovish and uh, mentioning the fact that they could move away from negative interest rate before they do QE. Some signs that the PBOC might be marginally uh, tightening policy, and uh, generally speaking, the central banks are, uh, on the whole, less dovish than they once were. Uh, they're trying to weaken their currency less than they used to. And so it is part of a very complex set of policies. You have people who comment on it who are irrelevant, people who comment on it who actually are relevant, and mm. the ones who are commenting uh, the most uh, may or may not be the, the most relevant one. Help me yourself, Gally, with, with the dynamics of the dollar, the surprise ending the first quarter. Hard to believe with the, the frigid uh, Fifth Avenue uh, today. But ending the first quarter, uh, the surprise is the idea of the dollar not advancing. It's been, I think, all in all, a consensus surprise. What's the catalyst to get the dollar to lift? You would need to get better data, and unfortunately, Q1 is a, is probably going to be relatively weak. So you need to get a, a sense that the, the economic data is continuing, that the labor market is continuing to tighten, and the salaries are continuing to improve. And for now, the salary side remains relatively weak. Productivity mm -hmm. in the U.S. is relatively weak, and so the the catalyst on the pure dollar side is we haven't not seen that the GDP. Great. The GDP is not out here. Q1, we expect for seasonal uh, reasons to be uh, weak. We could get, in some cases... What about second quarter, quickly? Uh, probably around 2%, so we basically oh, okay. average out... That's it. killing me. Wait, wait, wait. If you get your fiscal package and, and the likes, then what you can imagine yeah. is that trend growth would actually increase quite significantly. That's what part of the market is betting on. Sebastian Gelly, thank you so much. The Wheels of Power Breakfast, the Pierre Hotel. Stay with us. Tony Dwyer with us. Ken Accord Genuity. Tony Dwyer has been a massive bull on the markets. Tony, we were clumsy on television this morning with all the uh, uh, reporting from London and, of course, with a prime minister's speech. A little more quiet now with you. Are you still a bull on a bull market? 
You should never, ever, 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 ever sell and get negative unless you can identify a close proximity to a recession. That doesn't mean the market can't pull back. We're actually kind of calling for one now. But ultimately, it's too hard to call the pullback and then get back in if you get really the negative get, and defensive. The get back in is what yeah. the amateurs don't understand. It's what the professionals don't understand either, by the way. <laughs> okay. It's, it's where the getting back you in You can is get defensive and you call it right, and all of a sudden the market turns really quickly. It's up 4% from the low, and you Tony, say, wait, hold on, I can't buy it because it's up okay, too much. It'll Tony, pull back. this is different. The two gentlemen over here at Table 14 at the Pier Hotel, <laughs> they're taking notes. So be careful. Uh-oh. Be careful what you say. <laughs> David, jump in hey, here. Don't we need one of those regulatory disclaimers? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. Bring the don't lawyers. don't bring eat the too many of the sausage there. You burn the sausage. It's good. Correction underway. Opportunity ahead in your most recent note. Talk to us a bit about finding that opportunity. Well, that opportunity is extraordinary because you have uh, a global synchronized economic recovery. When we had upgraded the tape, we had been neutral last summer and upgraded the ta- our opinion of the market and the offensive sectors, meaning financials, tech, um, industrials, ahead of the election, not because we thought Donald Trump would win. I, I wish I was that smart. I had no idea. Um, what we did it because you had economic improvement in, in the eurozone, economic improvement in Asia coming off of last year's January and February low, David. It was an extraordinary positive trajectory that nobody was talking about because of the election. That's why you, you should be – that's why I am positive is because you're having a recovery in earnings. You're having a recovery in economic activity this morning in the, while we were on the show that I, I didn't feel was so clumsy. Um, the U.K. reported retail sales that were better than expected. But wait a second. Isn't Britain supposed to fall into the ocean because of Brexit? Mm. No, it accelerated. Their currency declined. Credit opened up. Same thing happened in the Eurozone. The same thing happened in Asia. So you're seeing this better economic activity globally. And for the investors uh, that are listening, the market is most closely correlated to the direction of earnings. That's driven by economic activity. That's driven by the money availability via the slope of the yield curve, and that's driven by Fed policy. So as long as the Fed stays somewhat accommodative, even on more hikes are going to be accommodative, you have a, you have a, probably years before you peak this thing out. This guy is always his toughest critic, by the way, in terms of the clumsiness, clumsiness of the TV. Well, that's why, <laughs> he, that's why he's so good. Well, you know, I, I just think that a lot of people have missed this bull market. Let me ask you the question I ask everyone. And, Tony, I say with great respect for your intellectual courage, how do you catch up? You have to – in a world where all the money is going you pa- don't leverage. passive. Well, you can at certain times, Tom. You don't – think about this analogy. It's very hard to stretch a rubber band that has already been fully stretched. It's a lot easier to stretch a rubber band once it's been neutral and gone back to its normal state. There's periods of time where you have these multi-month runs like we recently have where you just kind of pull in the horns a little bit and you just say, okay, let's wait for a little bit of a pullback and a better opportunity for that rubber band to contract. Once it does, then you get offensive. Then you buy the financials. What most people don't realize is, yes, the S&P 500 and the Dow and all the indices are right up against an all-time high. But on a relative performance basis, the banks have underperformed since early last December. The S&P financial sector. So you're hard-pressed to say that you're reversing the Trump trade. You have already have. Energy has been terrible. Materials, meaning you know, commodity stocks, mm. have been terrible. Financials have been up but underperforming the overall market. So the Trump trade has already been reversed. You mentioned, you mentioned uh, earnings. You mentioned Fed policy. 
Uh, you have a lot of people who are watching what's happening or not happening in Washington with, with some concern. How are you regarding all of that? Uh, as, a, as a strategist, what, what are you making of what's happening in Washington? You look for excuses versus reasons. I see. The market is has an excuse to sell off. If uh, the uh, Health Care Act doesn't go to vote tonight, you could have a sell-off. But the reason, the only reason you really go defensive sustainably, I mean, I, I wish I were a good trader. I'm a terrible trader. The reason that you go defensive or negative sustainably is when you when bank lending shuts down and you can measure that as Tom mentioned earlier um, from the three-month and five-year yield curve or the 210 is a, is a measure but that's how you measure how close you are to a recession if you take the current Fed dot plot and you look at where the 10-year note is right now and keep it there mm. you're not going to even invert the curve until mid 2018 your median inversion is 15 yeah. months so you're talking about close to 2020 before you have a, a prospect for a recession. One of the high points of the week, folks, and, and I mean this seriously because David and I are gerbils with what we do. Your television coverage yesterday with the breaking news out of London was really extraordinary, David, and with Francine Lacroix there uh, at Parliament. Mm. But, um, Tony, one of the highlights is to walk over here to the Pierre Hotel. It's about a three-block, big New York City blocks walk, and it, we you collect your thoughts. And you and I on the walk over, we're talking about cash flow. And the big, to me, underestimation fundamentally is we take low single-digit revenue growth and it materializes in the high single-digit uh, growth of EBITDA, operating income, whatever. How do companies do that? Review for us again how I go from 3% growth to a solid 9 or 11% growth down the income statement. I, I really think, Tom, it comes to technological improvement that allows for productivity gains. We're at full employment. Isn't it kind of strange that you're seeing this low single-digit revenue growth and high single-digit profit growth with full employment? No. So I think it really has to come down with capital spending and investment that creates better productivity. And we've had this a little bit on the show, folks, but it's just as much the conversations we have on our, on our commercial breaks. And what we're hearing, David, from anybody traveling is there help. The, the, the new thing in America is help wanted signs. Mm. I mean, there's help wanted signs everywhere. That's that's the anecdotal from our steam. It, it really is the opposite of what you had um, at the at the financial market low. You had every house for sale, and you could have gotten any price you wanted, and you had no hiring going on. Hmm. Now you have bidding wars everywhere around the country for for homes, and you can't find proper employees. How married or how intertwined are the soft and hard data at this point? Uh, we've been so focused on sentiment and the optimism therein. Uh, is it starting to match? The, is the hard data starting to match that? It's it's trending that way, David. I, I think, um, and for the listeners, this is like if you look at small business optimism index had a record surge in, in December. What you look for is if that fades. So you look for the next month's data. It's not the big surge that's important. It's if it holds. And it's held for the next two different um, reports. So in, in our view, that's a good leading indicator. Here, here's a great statistical example. Global purchasing manager indices, which have been very, very strong over the course of the last six months, trending that way, leads industrial production by two months. Tony Dwyer, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it this morning with Ken Accord. Uh, Genuity, we will continue with Mr. Dwyer to talk. I think we should talk more sectors here. We, Terrific. You know, yeah. Broader market. Maybe get you know we saw the industrials we saw GE yesterday restructure their industrial incentives off the uh, incentives from uh, Nelson Peltz. Here is um, an announcement of one of our wonderful guests. He is truly one of the best cross rate strategists. 
uh, in the world. We've talked to him for well in excess of a decade. When Stephen Englander, working with Willem Bowder and the team at Citigroup, he will leave Citigroup and he will join Rafiki, the hedge fund, the acclaimed hedge fund out of Hong Kong. Mr. Englander is reported to be based in New York. Looks for a June start there. But it is, um, you know, the body's moving around on Wall Street. Seeing a lot of this. Yes, seeing a lot of it. Drew Mattis will be with us soon at MetLife now from UBS. And, again, Steve Englander, we can report to you. Thank you, Susie Waite, for this. Uh, We'll be uh, leaving Citigroup, a real loss for anyone to see Mr. Englander with his competencies on foreign exchange. He will go to the hedge fund. You mentioned Nelson Peltz as well. He'll be sitting down with the president and the treasury secretary today for lunch at the White House. It'll be a lunch with Stephen Mnuchin and uh, Nelson Peltz. That would be a fly on the wall for that. To be there. Maybe maybe Mr. Peltz can help with health care. I got bad news, guys. It's 28 degrees here, whatever it is. We're not at spring training. Douglas Cass of Seabreeze Partners listening in this morning is... From the stands. From the stands. I don't know. Marlon somebody today maybe is who he's uh, looking at. And he has an important uh, question for our guest, Anthony Dwyer. And as usual, Tony, one Doug Cass is really on the pulse of America. Away from the banks, away from industrial, as we saw with GE and Mr. Peltz yesterday, is the death of retail. I like what Doug says, the retail evisceration. How do you avoid the, 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 the disaster? Of bricks and mortar right now. I'm trying to think of anything better than being on air with you and getting a question from my pal Dougie. Um, but I <laughs> he don't. He hasn't think... made money for 90 days, so stop it. Um, <laughs> how, what do we do it about bricks money. and mortars collapse? We it's, see it in the. I don't see it changing. It's a secular trend, but that does not necessarily mean that retail spending is down. It's like restaurants and retailers, bricks and mortar retailers, are in trouble because you have Amazon and Netflix. So you've changed the makeup. I don't think human nature has changed. If you give me money, I will spend the money. It's what we do. <laughs> and, that, and money is widely available. So you're going to avoid a low multiple, low book value. Terry Lundgren had his retirement dinner, I believe, last night, a wonderful charity uh, event here in New York City, the, the, the giant of Macy's. You avoid those ratios. And does that mean you can buy something like Amazon with, no, with, with, with massive P.E. multiples? I, I cannot comment on individual stocks, but I will point this out. I thought the sausage you could have made, you know, <laughs> it, it power is. breakfast here would change But that. it was burnt, so it's all good. Yeah. Um, so that could have been said four years ago. <clears throat> How long has Sears been a value trap? How long have some of the other retailers been a value trap? And how long has Amazon been overvalued? So, again, not coming on those specific stocks, we have to be careful to misuse valuation and say low is good and high is bad because the evidence is contrary. So not talking about specific stocks here. How about sector-wise? What's most appealing to you uh, at this point? Right we now, about again, the now, going on in Washington. for the You're next six to 12 that, yeah. months, and we've, we're neutral sectors right now. So okay. in other words, I, I have no favorite sectors. I just want to be benchmarked out of the way while the market chops around on this political wranglings. When it gets uh, worked off some of the optimism and overbought, I want to be long What's been working? The financials, the information technology, uh, industrials, and honestly, warming up to energy. You've had an incredible drop in the energy space. Um, so I think that creates opportunity. Maybe even materials and, and healthcare is is pretty inexpensive. So there's some seriously fun areas to look at once you work off some of the optimism that's out there. 
Uh, you've got these tactical indicators. Walk us through what you're looking at. Stochiasticity. Always <laughs> Stochias- a good one to say on the Tom radio. Loves Tom loves Tom, Tom's ears perked up when I said them. <laughs> it looked what, at what, you like you got 10 hats I, is what he did. I, I love what they do with the stochastic kale here at, at, <laughs> at, the, at the Pier Hotel. I wish the listeners could see the look on your face when you said that. Anyway, um, so there's four indicators that we use to tell us when to get in. Yeah. It's now... When you're outside of recession, it's not whether you're bullish. It's when you get bullish enough to really be aggressive. That happens when the VIX goes over 20. Again, uh, for the listeners, the CBOE volatility index is the VIX. When It's at 12. When it gets above 20. When you get the percentage of stocks on the NYSE or S&P 500, when only 10% of them are above their 10-day moving average. In other words, 90% are below their 10-day moving average. We're nowhere near there. Um, when you get the weekly stochasticity, or yep. I'll say it right, stochastic, <laughs> below, below uh, 50, I think, it, at this point in the market, that would be uh, an indicator. And again, the investor's intelligence bulls. You want below 45%. Now, it was at a, a 30-year high at yeah. 63% two weeks ago. And now it, it had an uptick in the most recent week to 56%. It's very hard to have a market rally, again, when that rubber band has already been stretched and hasn't contracted this at all, is, David. This is what I love. You're looking at, at bullishness of newsletters, right? Yep. How does, how does it work? They, Investors Intelligence releases the data, yeah. and they pull all the newsletter blogs and all those other places. Has your target for the S&P changed at all? It has. I, uh, I raised it, okay, expecting a pullback, so sure. that seems kind of contrary, but who wants to buy a market for a 2% gain when it pulls back 4%? I mean, that's no... And also, what mm. changed me, and Tom and I were talking about this on the way over, was I sat down with a couple of company managements, and they indicated their enthusiasm for the non-negative, meaning no new regulations, no new taxes. It wasn't even tax cuts and lower regulation that had them excited. Oh. It was just the knowledge there wasn't going to be anything new. Let's bring uh, the Pier Hotel to a complete halt right now and go mathematics on everybody. It's a Still perfect spring. Do it. That might bring me to a halt too, David. I don't know. This, I'm scared this, now. This whole world, and of course, you know, in, in the Pier Hotel, a lot of hedge fund people here that have two and twenty tattooed to their brain. It's about a log normal world, which means you go down faster than you go up. Is a yep. is a real simple mathematical phrase. This idea of not negative, which is a double negative, this goes back to Leviathan and Hobbes. Wow. The fact is, guys. Guys like you, grizzled pros, and the people, frankly, here at the Pierre Hotel, spend a lot more time trying to not lose money than to make money. How do I not lose money right now? I think you lose money, assets, when you underperform the market. Trying to time the drop and then get in at the proper time on the recovery is very difficult to do. It's almost like double buying. If you're negative, just to go neutral is like a bullish trade in your emotion, but it's only neutral. So here's our plan. If you are significantly overweight offensive sectors, just pull it back to a market neutral position. If you've made a bunch of money in stocks and you want to kind of cut back a little bit, and, and just be prepared yeah. to buy. And, and David, this is so critical in investment theory, and I'm going to do a shout-out to uh, my good friend Jim Kramer uh, over at the Death Star. And uh, Jim gets this. Jim gets this. This is important. It's not buy-sell. It's not buy-hold-sell. It's four things. You own it. You go to cash. You're in cash. You sell it. Or you go the other way. You're in cash. You buy it. You're in cash. You sell it. In the complexity here of Tony Dwyer's world, is a lot more than just, uh, what do I do today? Should I own it That's right. or not? It's a, The complexity is what can kill you. And my pal Jim uh, Kramer would also agree with us and say that every single listener 
has to go by their own view and not the view of day-to-day -day yeah. people like me that come on the radio or come on TV. And their own confidence in the Correct. system, which is, of course, being addicted to Bloomberg well, surveillance. Here's, here's the problem. You, let's say I say buy, and somebody says, well, that's unsmart. <clears throat> I'm going to go out and buy. As soon as something seems to go wrong, they'll go out and sell. So they'll make the mistake of getting out too quick because they got in not on their own confidence. Yeah. So the tendency is to be short-termist. Is that what is that what you're saying? No, I think that, I think in the market where there's so much passive investments mm -hmm. and again, that's money going into index funds and ETFs. The best way to create significant outperformance of just putting it in an index fund is trying to time a macro event. And to do that, you have to have money to buy when it weakens. Back to where we started here, we were talking about sort of what's, what's driving the market right now. We haven't talked about central banks very much. We had the Fed meeting last week, ECB meeting uh, as well. When you look at what is driving the market right now, political events, can look forward to the elections in France, all, all these macro events. Yeah. What role are, are central banks playing right now? It, it's a key role. It, it is the, it's the role. Still. The European Central Bank changed the global economy when they announced that they were going to buy private debt. I mean, when you're lowering um, monetary policy 10 basis points further into negative territory when nobody's borrowing anyway, that's why you were in malaise. When they decided to buy private corporate debt, you're injecting money directly into the balance sheets of companies. That is a huge deal and has created, partially created, the recent recovery right. in Europe. Tony, thank you so much. Tony Dwyer with us today from Canaccord Genuity with some good here. investment theory there on maybe the basic idea is how not to lose money. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. Too brief of a visit this morning with Nicholas Burns, former ambassador. Ambassador Burns, there was a moment which I hope all in Washington saw, where the Prime Minister greeted the Foreign Minister of France uh, in the gallery at the House of Commons. What can this administration learn as the United Kingdom in real time goes through a crisis? Well, I think that we're all in this together, that when an incident like a terrorist attack like this occurs, um, you need international cooperation because, as you know, Tom, it's not just the military application of force. It's the police work, it's intelligence cooperation, judicial cooperation, and I, you can be sure that the American services are trying to help Britain, as are the European services, because these terrorists are floating across our borders, and especially the European borders, and it's an international fight against them. What happens in Washington in the aftermath of an attack like the one that we saw yesterday? Uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson had convened a meeting of allies in the fight against uh, ISIS in Foggy yes. Bottom. What's the, what's the procedure? What's the protocol? Well, certainly, President Trump did the right thing. He called Theresa May, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, to offer our assistance and offer condolences. Rex Tillerson made a statement because he had 50-odd foreign ministers there on the, talking about the fight against um, uh, the Islamic State. But more importantly, our uh, intelligence and counterterror personnel were reaching out, I'm sure, to their British counterparts to offer assistance if that assistance is necessary. And the one thing that we've learned, and the British have more experience than anyone else because of the sordid IRA campaign against Britain over so many decades, that you do need to work across international borders when you're trying to combat oh. modern terrorism. And I admire the way the British have conducted themselves 
over the last 24 hours and going back to work. Millions of Londoners on the streets going back into their normal routines, which I think, which the British believe is the best answer to terrorism in their right. And a certain courage, and of course the international perspective that Prime Minister gave, uh, Prime Minister May gave us on the injured uh, and the dead. We speak with Nicholas Burns, of course, with his public service uh, to the United States. Ambassador, um, I, I think there's a lot of value to the fears that people have of terrorism. The president was able to find a resonance about this within his campaign, and it's a resonance that leads to bans, to walls. And yet here again is a supposed lone wolf, and we don't really know the details. A wall or a ban here really wouldn't have worked, would it? No, it wouldn't have. But let me just say, uh, Tom, I think, you know, President Trump is right that terrorism is a major threat to the United States, as it is to allied countries like Britain. But you have to fight it on different levels. He convened over the over this week 50-odd countries in the fight against the Islamic State. He was right to do that, President Trump and Secretary Tillerson. So on the one hand, you have to combat the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq, where their base is. But on the other hand, to protect Americans here at home or Brits in London, you've got to be it's a different game. It's a different struggle. And, and this attack apparently came in London from someone who's been living in the United Kingdom for quite yeah. some time. Yeah. As some of the attacks, uh, San Bernardino, for instance, in the United States have come from people who've been living in our country. So it's a very different level of difficulty. And you've got to employ intelligence and police as well as the military on different fields of this battle. Do you feel is a grizzled pro of bureaucracy that we are spending our intelligent budget intelligently. Is it money well spent or do you wake up every morning saying we're furthering it away or squandering it? I have, uh, I serve in the diplomatic corps, obviously, but I have tremendous respect for the intelligence community in the United States and for the FBI and our law enforcement community. They are putting their lives on the line. They're very good at what they do. No one's perfect. None of us are perfect. And so sometimes someone gets through like the London attacker did yesterday. But you see the follow-up. You see the speed with which the British authorities are working, our authorities under when we've been attacked. And it truly is impressive. So I would say you have to spend this money uh, on our on the FBI and intelligence services to keep us safe. And Tom, and your earlier question, it's not really a question of building walls. Walls aren't going to help. Walls on a border don't help. Intelligence and police work is what helps. Ambassador Burns, I want to ask you about our relationship with NATO. At that joint press conference last week, Chancellor Merkel and President Trump both talked about NATO. We had the president uh, saying what many had hoped he'd say for a long time, that is that he supports the alliance. He pivoted very quickly to talk about how it's financed or how he believes it's, uh, it's financed. And then we have Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, saying he couldn't make a NATO meeting. NATO is saying we're happy to oblige and change the meeting date uh, to accommodate him. What's your sense of this administration's uh, support of the alliance right now? Well, it's tepid, and they haven't really found the right notes and the right tonality because the United States is the leader of NATO. Of course, Secretary Tillerson has to be at the meeting of NATO foreign ministers before he goes to Moscow, and it looks like now they're going to try to rearrange the schedule so that he can do that. So there's a happier outcome here. I thought that President Trump, I was glad to hear him say that he believes NATO is vital, but then it, within a second he transitioned to say, but they're not paying enough. He's right they're not paying enough, but he almost treats it like a protection racket. If you don't pay, I'm going to withdraw our support, which is not the way that any American president has ever treated our allies who came to our defense on 
And so I think the, the administration really needs to get into the leadership mode. They've been following on the NATO issue. We are the leaders of NATO, and we have to act like it and believe in it. And I don't think we've heard that from President Trump yet. Before we let you go, let me put a question to you. I'm going to put to Anne-Marie Slaughter here in a, in a few minutes as well. When you look at Rex Tillerson and the kind of diplomat he is shaping up to be, what camp does he fall into? <laughs> Structural realism and, and all of that. What, what kind of diplomat is Rex Tillerson? What do we know about his uh, diplomatic tact? It's just not clear because he's been literally quiet for the last couple of months. He hasn't been speaking publicly. He hasn't enunciated his view of the world. Uh, it's unclear what kind of influence he has with the White House. And so I think we just need more time to see Secretary Tillerson in action. But I can tell you this. The Trump administration is proposing a 29% cut in the State Department and AID budgets. That would be catastrophic. It would cripple our diplomats. It's the wrong way to go, and I hope Secretary Tillerson will fight this, and I hope Congress will resist it and bring the Trump administration back to a more realistic posture that our diplomats need to be funded. Ambassador Burns, thank you so much for your perspective this day where the Prime Minister speaks to the House of uh, Commons. This is special, folks. We've had a really wonderful run of strong books. I think of Admiral Stravitas' book out of Fletcher School and Tom Nichols' book out of the Naval Academy on experts. And then a little jewel shows up, the chessboard in the web, Anne-Marie Slaughter. And you're like, yeah, yeah, she's great. It'll be great. And then you open it, and the joy of how you recapitulate and bring forward this dreaded thing, game theory. Out of Princeton, you know that Avinash Dixit, the art of strategy, uh, is, is a, almost a cottage industry. And my joy is you open with the late Tom Schelling, who changed how all of us think. We would all say, why did you open this book on networks, The Chessboard and the Web, with Professor Schelling? Because Tom Schelling defined the framework that we have used for, for, for foreign policy since 1961. He took the U.S.-Soviet relationship, which was a zero-sum uh, relationship, so people thought, and he applied game theory, and he said, nope, this is actually a bargaining game. It can be chicken, where your head's heading straight at each other. It can be prisoner's dilemma. It can be a coordination game. And that structured how we think about other countries. That's the chessboard world. And that, for me, was the semi, you know, the text that you looked at. But when I look at the world, I see state-to-state -state relations, but I also see a world of networks. I mean, right now, we just had a terrorist attack inspired by the ISIS network. There are criminal networks, there are business networks, there are civic networks. We have a strategy of conflict. That was Tom Schelling's book. We do not have strategies of connection. And so I set out to try to provide right. a framework for those. How much does a diplomatic theory change uh, Secretary of State to Secretary of State? Uh, is he or she uh, choosing his or her outlook on the world, or is the outlook on the world governed by the way that the world is shaped at that particular time? Well, I think it's always both. Every president, every Secretary of State discovers that the world gets in the way. Whatever it is they thought they wanted to do, uh, you know, the world serves them up something different. And I remember serving with Secretary Clinton, where in one week, you had the Pakistani Taliban being within 100 miles of Islamabad. You had the H1N1 virus breaking out in uh, Mexico. And you had what looked like a double-dip uh, global recession. So uh, you get what's thrown at you. But again, we have better tools for dealing with what states throw at us than what non-state actors throw at us. You see this networked world 
What's brought it about? Is it, is it technology that's led us there? Is it something else? Well, it's technology that's always been true. You know, John Maynard Keynes has this famous paragraph where he describes the London, uh, you know, banker sitting, you know, in 1913 with products from all over the world. That was enormous globalization then, and that was brought about by the steamship and various other uh, uh, technologies in the Industrial Revolution. Today, it is, again, it's globalization and technology. Those two things are connected. But our kids don't know what it's like not to be connected. We grew up in a world where it's us, and then we connect others. And in our next section, we'll get to the politics of the moment. But what I would use here from electrical engineering is slew rates, which is the right angle uh, circuitry, which is things move fast. Things move at light speed now. Let's take a corporate landscape, somebody reading uh, the chessboard and the web within a corporate milieu. The new strategy, there's no five-year strategy. The new strategy in the slew rate is three years. Exactly. If, if that. I mean, I yeah. often say this is no world to predict and planned, plan. It's a world in which you have to adapt and respond. So one of the things you want is to create the kind of fast, adaptive network so that whatever happens, you're ready. Mm-hmm. And indeed, I use Stan McChrystal's work on Team of Teams where you know he had to design a network to defeat al-Qaeda in Iraq, and he says, and he says to CEOs, look, I needed to design a very particular kind of network so I could let my people respond on their own, on the ground, depending what came at them. And you detail this in the book, and the Crystal Group applies this to the corporate setting. How does it do that? Well, the first thing it does is a network analysis of any business, and that's critical because we all know they're informal networks. There's no organization in the world where there's a you know there's the hierarchy. You report to this person, but how do things really get done? Where's the network? So you got to map that and then figure out how you tweak it. What does this mean for the the, the power structure in the in the diplomatic sense? You had world powers before. Is power waning because of this? Is power being more evenly distributed among countries and among leaders? Yes, although one of the reasons it's called the chessboard and the web is you have to see both, right? You have to look at the world of states and the different power changes there, but you also have to look at, you know, foreign policymakers who are CEOs, civic leaders, university presidents, sadly criminals on the the other side. Uh, And so if you're in government, you need to be doing that state-to-state statecraft. But you need to be doing webcraft, and that means bringing in all these actors who are not governments. With Anne-Marie Slaughter, the chessboard and the web, we're going to continue here. Breaking news out of Ford Motor, it gives pause. Uh, they lower the sites dramatically for their first quarter. They were at 47 cents, and they come way down center tendency, 32 to 33 cents. That is remarkable uh, from Ford Motor. We'll look much more on that. They cite higher costs, lower volume, uh, and unfavorable exchange. Um, I want to give you the blurb award of the year. As everyone knows, it's ever written a book. There's a game to getting blurbs. I was honored when I did Flying With One Engine uh, that I, I got a blurb from this person, a blurb from that person. In your world, you can't do better than your first two names, Nye and Kieran. Did you talk to them at the same time? I mean, that is that is a great honor, isn't it? It is, and they are dear friends of mine, and they wrote the book in 1976, yeah. Power and Interdependence. And yeah. that was the chessboard, Power and Interdependence, the web. And so I see in many ways I'm updating their work uh, and giving you practical tools. This is exactly set, folks. And I would hope Paul in here, Vinod Agarwal at Berkeley, 
as well and pull it back to Tom Schelling at the beginning of your book, which is it's one big game of chicken. Yeah. And to get to our next section, what does President Trump need to learn about the theory of the game of chicken within power and interdependence and within strategy and conflict shelling? Uh, that's a what great... do we need to learn about chicken? All right. Well, the first you didn't thing I this over eggs and bacon, did you? <laughs> no. Well, except that I think that this is a critical example of. So the Russians hacked our election, right? And we responded by you know putting out a few, uh, expelling some diplomats, some sanctions. Putin responded to that by inviting the American diplomats' children to the Kremlin. He basically laughed at us. We need to respond, and this is chicken in a way that actually threatens his secrets, that humiliates him, that puts, that really puts him on notice. No, we will not stand for Where this. Where did our timidity come from within the constructive game of chicken? David Gurr and I play chicken every morning, <laughs> trying to figure out how to get to the next cup of coffee. Lives, yeah. Well, when did we get timid? So I do think that the, the sort of national trauma of first 9-11, but then particularly Iraq and Afghanistan, has made us extremely hesitant or mm -hmm. made the Obama yeah. administration to use force. And you yeah. can't play chicken unless you've got a credible threat. And right. that means you've got to use force so people know that you're willing yeah. to use David, force. David, get one more check in here. That China you heard thrown was Charles Vollmer, our technical director, <laughs> throwing China because the eggs were overcooked. <laughs> You write in this book of being uh, a student at Princeton <laughs> and reading Robert Cohen's book and, and, and uh, uh, Joseph Nye as well. Right. Uh, how much has, you know, you, you've taught for a long time at Princeton. Has the, the pedagogy changed when it comes to foreign policy? You know that you would still read Nye and Cohan. I, I, if you were, if I were teaching you, you you'd read you Schelling would. Okay. too. You, bet you, would. you would. But, but I do think one of the problems is it's become much, much more specialized. Right. So you don't take these broad courses where you're thinking strategy. You take grand political strategy. grand yeah, strategy. Right. You take political economy or data. Okay. Well, we're going to come back. Amory Slaughter with us. We've got to cut here the, ch the chessboard in the web. And we're going to come right back on that idea, the broad strategy, reading Kissinger's diplomacy at gunpoint. You will read this book. No, you need to read about networks in the new digital uh, world, and you'll do that with Anne-Marie Slaughter. We celebrate the chessboard in the web, strategies of connection in a networked world with Anne-Marie Slaughter. Um, truly must read if you uh, read on international relations and again starting with the game theory of Tom Schelling uh, and working uh, off of that. Um, I did what any good radio slave would do. I went to the conclusion and you wrote a chapter on Mr. Trump, the rise of webcraft. Translate for us the webcraft of Twitter and the president. We didn't do this with President Obama, President Johnson, President Nixon. <laughs> We're now tweeting our way through policy. Is that in your book? Well, it is in the sense that, that uh, you know, uh, President Trump has a brilliant broadcast network, right? He's got 26 million Twitter followers. That's about half his voters. That's a, a sizable chunk of all U.S. voters. And But that's a one-way network, right? What President Obama discovered, and he had a pretty great network, too, in 2008, when he tried to convert those people to advocates for Obamacare, and now President Trump would like to have those people be advocates for repealing Obamacare, he's got the wrong network for that. So he's got you know one person at the center broadcasting to 26 million. He needs what I call a pod network, right, of where those supporters are actually clustered in ways that you can mobilize them and they can take action. And that's a different net structure of a network 
So he needs to actually mm -hmm. learn some network theory if he's going to make it work for what he needs to do now. Tom, I'm glad that you've brought us here because I look at Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and I wonder where he fits into this network uh, world. Uh, we followed his trip to Asia last week. Uh, he wasn't exactly broadcasting no. from that trip. He brought one journalist <laughs> on the plane. We got a write-up of that. He avowed in an interview with her uh, that he doesn't like the media and doesn't see a need for media. I imagine that public diplomacy is key to this network world, it, being it, out it, there, talking, yeah. expressing your opinions. Absolutely. And, and he is now back in a very traditional chessboard world where it's sort of man-to-man -man in a dark oak-paneled room and he's not an all-secret, right? Like pre-World War I secret agreements secretly arrived at where, in fact, uh, you know, he needs to do... He needs to be engaging... Uh, the pu public at large, but again, creating networks of pockets of support for American policy. And we're crazy if we think it's only foreign governments we need to influence. Again, look at terrorist attacks. That's not governments. That's people. And you need to think about not just public diplomacy, he, how great America is, but where are the people in different countries around the world who themselves are pushing back or against the ISIL narrative? And how do you connect them first to each other and then, uh, and then sort of in a, in a uh, broader uh, network? And that's, that is something I think Secretary Clinton started uh, and Secretary Kerry did, a, did less than she did, and Rex Tillerson is really heading backwards. How do you deal with the overwhelmingness of the networked world? I can understand the tendency, because of how big and wide it is, uh, to find comfort in the wood-paneled room, to yes. want to go back to that. Yes. How do yes. you fight that? How do you <laughs> see this as a world that you can navigate? You know, I think that, that's, a, uh, that's a great observation, and I, th I think it's right. There's this sort of feeling like, well, I'll just do what I know mm. I can do. Uh, but you actually have to do both. So you do still need that room. Like if we're making a deal with Iran, that's not a global network. That's a negotiation. But you, it's part of the reason I wrote the book. Part of the reason it seems overwhelming is we don't have any tools. So if you think again, go back to shelling, oh, wait a minute, this is a cooperation game. This is a coordination game. Yeah. This is what I do in those games. I'm saying, oh, this is a resilience network. We need to build resilience. This is what it's got to look like. This is a task network. We need to get something done. That's team of teams. Or this is a scale right. network. We need to correct people. And I think it'll be more manageable when you think mm. about it. Better. I want to take the time we've got left. And, and ask the question. I got a wonderful email the other day from uh, Carol driving with her daughter, uh, uh, you know, listening to, to the hot air coming out of Mr. Gurr and Mr. King. And it, it brings it back to the hallmark of your academics. And I'm going to take this back to Charlottesville and St. Anne's a million years ago, which you've always been the adult academically in the room. You've got an understanding of the heritage and the reading of the literature like Nine Keohain. And you've also got a more modern twist as well. What's your recommendation to parents trying to get boys and girls motivated to get off the, the phone and to read the original literature that's out there? You did that. I did. And, and actually, I think you put your finger on it, which is, and it goes back to, they're overwhelmed, right? There's they are. so much coming at them. So it, it, it's unfashionable. But I would say you need to go back to create a canon, right? Like here are basic texts. At, at, since November, I've gone back and I've been reading the founders, right? I've been reading sort of key documents. I am uh, too. Documents. I'm reading Chamberlain's one volume on Thomas Jefferson right now. Absolutely. An and example. John Meacham's book exactly. on Jefferson is just wonderful. So I think we need to remind our kids 
to be able to process this infinite amount of information, you need a set of texts, uh, and you need to, and, and you can master those. And that is exactly what I think the strategy of conflict is me, in uh, in international relations. Very quickly, or what was it like to be intimidated by Professor Ullman at Princeton a million years ago? <laughs> My God, he was a giant. He was, but he was very nice to me by the time I got there. Not helped. I was his dean, so I was mm -hmm. his boss. Um, but he, you were his boss. I was his boss. Wow. I was, but uh, Dick Ullman. Was, yeah, yeah. He, but he was a power. Yeah. He really was a power. Not enough time. Don't be a stranger. The chessboard and the web strategies of connection in a network world. Anne Marie Slaughter hits a home run by dragging Thomas Schelling and Nine Q. And I hope Professor Nice hearing this. I mean, dragging them into the sure. dragging <laughs> them into the modern day and age of network <laughs> and digital. His books, his thick tome is familiar to anyone who's been through law school. Constitutional law in its fifth edition, criminal procedure uh, in its second. Erwin Chemerinsky, the founding dean of the School of Law at the University of California, Irvine, joins us now as we've watched the hearings unfold on Capitol Hill in the Hart Senate office uh, building. Uh, Judge Gorsuch taking questions from members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Erwin Chemerinsky joining us now in the Spectrum uh, Enterprise phone line, Spectrum Enterprise nationwide IT and infrastructure uh, solutions. Great to have you with here, sir. And I want to ask you, first of all, what we're getting out of all of this. We see the marathon here. We, we hear the questions answered by uh, the judge hoping to be a justice. What are we learning about him over the course of this week? We're learning he's very smart, he's very articulate, and that he refuses to answer questions about anything concerning his <laughs> legal views. <laughs> Has that always been the case? We watch the, the production here uh, every few years as this happens. It's not a regular thing. It's, it's a rare thing. But uh, it seems like that's the game, dodging these questions, trying to perhaps pretend that there is no uh, inherent uh, jurisprudence that these guys have. So long as the Senate is controlled by the same political party as the president, the hearings are largely meaningless. There are 52 Republican senators. Not one of them has indicated a desire to vote against Neil Gorsuch. He knows that. He knows he doesn't have to answer questions. If the Senate had been controlled by the Democrats, it's then a very different story. Because then they can say, if you don't answer our questions, we're not going to confirm you. How early on does somebody who's entering the law develop uh, his or her own jurisprudence? You're teaching uh, students at UC Irvine. You taught students at Duke before that. Uh, I'm sure many of them aspire to be judges someday. Is there an inclination now to be private about one's belief because of this? In other words, how long is the, the historical record uh, for candidates? I think you have two different questions. One is, how soon do students develop their jurisprudential philosophy? And I'd say that many students have that in law school. I hear it expressed by my constitutional law students all the time. The second to me is a much harder question. Are people now more private because they think if someday they're nominated for a federal judgeship, their views should not be known? Uh, maybe there are some that way. I once talked to a young law professor who said he didn't want to take positions on controversial issues because he wanted to be a federal judge someday. Uh, but I think that's pretty rare. I think that um, certainly being on the Supreme Court is like being struck by lightning. I don't expect that people are planning their careers from law school with the faint hope that that might happen. Uh, wonderful to have you on, Professor, this morning. I guess a required read along the way is Bernard Schwartz's one volume on the Supreme Court, which regrettably ends long ago and far away. Like near 1987, 
Help me here with the distinction between Judge Scalia's theory and Judge Gorsuch's theory. What's the difference and how they look at the original document? You mentioned 1987, and what's interesting about that year is it's when Robert Bork was denied confirmation for the Supreme Court. And Robert Bork was denied confirmation because of his so-called originalist views, his view that the meaning of a constitutional provision is the same today as was adopted. The meaning of the constitutional provision is fixed when it's adopted, and we change only by amendment. Justice Scalia was also an originalist, and both Judge Bork and Justice Scalia said, from their originalist philosophy, there's no protection of the right to privacy under the Constitution, like for reproductive freedom. There's no protection for women from discrimination under equal protection, because the drafters of the 14th Amendment in 1868 didn't intend that. Neil Gorsuch is also an originalist, and so far as we know, his views are the same as Robert Bork or Antonin Scalia's. Since he hasn't been willing to talk about any legal issues, hard to know when, if at all, he would disagree with them. Does his natural law treatment and the complexity of how natural law is studied, does it move him beyond Scalia and the others to maybe a more modern treatment? Well, natural law is quite different than originalism. Natural law would say that there are rights that exist just by virtue of our being humans, and that courts should protect those rights even if they're not in the Constitution. Neil Gorsuch wrote a book about euthanasia that expressed the natural law philosophy, but I've read hundreds of his decisions from the United States Court of Appeals to the Tenth Circuit, and I don't see any expression of natural law there at all. Glad you took us there, because that's what I guess we have to look at here, is his record. Hundreds, thousands of of decisions. Uh, If you were to put them together, what kind of picture could you paint for us here of of the way that he's acted as a federal judge? A very conservative judge. Yesterday, I gave a talk to lawyers who handled death penalty cases in federal defender's offices. And I talked with them about his record in criminal cases and especially in death penalty cases. He is a consistent vote for law enforcement and prosecutors often in dissent. So I think that he would very much be like Justice Scalia. Perhaps I think he'd be more conservative than Justice Scalia when it comes to criminal cases. Um, He's going to be exactly like Justice Scalia when it comes to religion cases. He rejects the idea of a separation of church and state. He favors the ability of people to free exercise religion, even when it means inflicting injuries on others. You know, I think of the, the way that academia works. When a professor retires of, say, uh, American literature, there is a tenure line. There's an effort to replace uh, that person with somebody else who studies American literature. Is the same thing becoming true on the Supreme Court? We heard from President Trump saying he wants to find an heir apparent to Justice Scalia. Uh, you want to replace one with, uh, with kind of a clone or someone like that person when it comes to uh, jurisprudential uh, f- philosophy. No, I don't think so. If Hillary Clinton had been elected president, she would want to pick the antithesis of Antonin Scalia in terms of political philosophy. Um, I think she would have renominated Chief Judge Merrick Garland, maybe even somebody more progressive than Merrick Garland. Um, Had Donald Trump decided he wanted to be a moderate rather than a far-right conservative, he would have picked a moderate federal court of appeals judge or a moderate individual for the Scalia seat. But he said from the time he campaigned that he wanted to pick 
someone just like Scalia ideologically. He wanted to give this nomination to the far right. And the day after President Trump nominated Judge Gorsuch, the National Review and Ted Cruz were loud in their enthusiastic praise. I think that tells you where Neil Gorsuch is on the ideological spectrum. Let me pick up where we left off with uh, Charlie Pellet and Greg Storer there just a moment ago. They talking about uh, the death penalty. Of course, the Supreme Court weighing in on uh, those issues from time to time. Help us understand here the role that a Justice Gorsuch might play when you look at uh, the cases, the kinds of cases that the Supreme Court is weighing. We've seen 4-4 decision after 4-4 decision here over the last few months. I think with regard to the death penalty, there are four justices on the current court, led by Justice Breyer and joined by Justices Ginsburg, Sonner, and Kagan, who would vote to eliminate the death penalty so that it's inherently cruel and unusual punishment. There are four justices who reject that, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kennedy, Thomas, and Alito. I think had a Democratic appointee replace Justice Scalia, there would be a fifth vote to declare the death penalty unconstitutional, or at least greatly restrict its application. From everything we know about Judge Gorsuch, from his votes on the Tenth Circuit, he's going to be with the conservatives. The death penalty will have still five votes to uphold it, five votes to reject any significant restrictions. A lot of people criticize this court for being overly corporatist, ruling a lot for corporations. We had Judge Gorsuch responding to questions from senators this week saying uh, he's ruled for the big guy and he's ruled for the little guy. Again, you've gone through uh, many of these decisions. Uh, can Can you estimate, can you say how often he's gone for one or the other? Well, it's always hard to do those kinds of numbers, but I think when you focus on the divided cases where there's majority and a dissent, he comes down very much on the side of employer over employee, of business over consumer. There was one case that got a lot of attention in the hearings that involves a truck driver whose truck broke down, and it was extremely cold, and finally he felt literally his life was going to be in danger if he didn't move the truck. He did so and got fired for that, and it was Judge Gorsuch who said he could be fired for doing that. Mm. And if nothing else, it shows a lack of empathy, but I think what the point was from the Democratic senators is it shows that he really sides with the employer over the employee. He, I think, again, is going to be with the conservative majority on the whole range of cases where it's business versus employee or consumer. A lot of conservatives would say, Professor, but the conservatives won the election, so they get to tilt the Supreme Court. And there's a great certitude about picking judges. And you know, littered in our history, going back before Marshall, frankly, you never know what a justice is going to do. What is the modern probability of any conservative justice versus Souter or, 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 or Byron White or others? Is there something different in the Kool-Aid now that makes a conservative a conservative forever? Well, you ask two questions. First, is winning a presidency the prerogative that then determines on the Supreme Court? Only if you can get a majority of the Senate to agree. In the 19th century, the Senate rejected about 20% of all presidential really? nominees, including one from George Washington. Um, in the 20th century, you had examples of John Parker in 1931, Clayman Hensworth, Harold Carswell, Robert Bork. So it's not a presidential prerogative. The Senate has to devise and consent. Second, um, there's certainly instances where individuals appointed to the Supreme Court didn't turn out as expected. Um, David Souter wasn't the conservative 
that the George H.W. Bush administration wanted. But what's notable is that David Souter, if you read his opinions from the New Hampshire Supreme Court, didn't have a definite ideology. Um, if you look at the last four Supreme Court nominees, Roberts, Alito, Sotomayor, and Kagan, they've all turned out exactly as would have been predicted. Most justices turn out exactly as predicted, especially if they have an ideological track record. Relatively few people have major ideological transformations in their 60s and their 70s. Antonin Scalia was as conservative when he died on February 13, 2016, as he went on the court in 1986. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is as liberal today as when she went on the court in 1993. I'll offer you a prediction. Neil Gorsuch is going to be conservative next year, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, maybe 40 years from now. He's 49 years old. If he remains on the Supreme Court until he's 90, the age was just John Paul Stevens retired, he'll be a Supreme Court justice. Erwin Chemerinsky, let me ask you lastly to draw upon your experience in the classroom uh, once more. We, we, we've seen what happened to Sally Yates. Uh, we've seen what happened to Preet Bharara. When you talk to students who are interested in getting into the law to work in government, what do you tell them about what we've seen here over these last few months, about the way uh, the Justice Department is operating now under President Trump? I always encourage my students to go into government and public service. I'm very proud that of all the law schools in the country, we were ranked second in placing our students in government and public service. I think now, when it comes to going into the federal government, assuming there's going to be any hiring letter, hiring freeze, yes, yeah. it depends on what they're going to be doing. My oldest son is a federal prosecutor doing gangs and violent crime cases. It's not going to be affected by who's attorney general. But if a student wants to go now and do environmental work on behalf of helping the environment, or civil rights work on behalf of African Americans and gays and lesbians and women, I don't think the Sessions Justice Department is going to be the place to go. Erin Chemerinsky, thanks very much for joining us uh, today. Erin Chemerinsky, Dean of the School of Law at the University of California, uh, Irvine, joining us on the Spectrum Enterprise phone line. Spectrum Enterprise, nationwide fire-based network and IT infrastructure solutions. I wasn't joking at the top of the show. I think that every student who takes criminal law or constitutional law uh, uses his textbook. So oh, a, a yeah. real leading oh, light yeah. uh, I mean, in, in he's the law huge. Field. He was at Duke, right? Yes, and then, for a long while. And then there was a huge battle when he went to UCAL Irvine. I yes. mean, he blew up the state legal uh, <laughs> uh, uh, community. Uh, with the debate on liberal, conservative, and all the rest. And, and founding but, dean of that school, so leading yeah. a, a fairly young school out there well, in, in California. We're trying to give you a little more informed coverage of uh, what we're seeing in the Supreme Court. And one idea here, I, I might suggest, David, very quickly, is is we just assume there'll be other discussions. I mean, it's not a one-off for President Trump. That's right. And uh, I think that's what Democrats are weighing right now in terms of how they yeah. approach this particular nomination, how, how full-throatedly they'll go against this nominee, looking ahead to who the next might be. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member.
SIPC 